Welcome to Good Returns TV. With me in the studio uh, this morning, we have Bronwyn Cohen, uh, who's in charge of sales and service at Fidelity Life. Nice to have you in here. Thanks, Phil. So how's things? Really well, thank nice, you. That's good. So we had quite a bit to cover today, and I was really interested to start off if you could sort of tell me a little bit about Fidelity's strategy at the moment and sort of you know how you're evolving and where you're heading. Love to. Um, so I would I would start by underlining Fidelity is on something of a transformation journey, and I know those are words commonly used mm. by financial services organisations these days. I can't. Uh, I can't emphasise enough the word transformation in that. As a almost 50-year-old company, uh, growing up from being a family-owned business to now um, something materially larger mm. and with cornerstone shareholders, New Zealand Super and uh, obviously Naitahu, uh, we are definitely on a journey uh, to really execute on what is a customer-led transformation. That is at the heart of our strategy. So we have uh, lots of things happening. We uh, certainly had a watershed year, I think, in, in 2021, first with the um, agreement to acquire Westpac Life and now in 2022 completing on that acquisition, which was just absolutely outstanding. So we welcomed 150,000 customers, uh, 50 new team members to the Fidelity Life Fano, and that is um, a very big focus of ours to integrate that business excellently. Um, over the over the coming months, <coughs> we also have something of a technology transformation, which wouldn't be um, different to Watson. Yeah. well, formerly known as Project Watson. Uh, we've come out the other side of Project Watson, and uh, we are now making really good inroads to becoming a more digitally enabled life insurance company. We have legacy challenges and legacy products and systems and things that are a continual stone in our shoe. Mm. But from a strategic perspective, that um, that technology transformation very much underpins um, sort of our long-term aspirations for being a customer-led insurer. So early on, you said that, you know, it's gone from being like a family-owned business, so that's the Watson family, of course, and now you have a different set of shareholders. How, how does that sort of change the business and how it operates now and what its values are compared to before? So it's interesting, the, the, the Watson family is still very much a shareholder of Fidelity Life, um, but we were delighted to welcome New Zealand Superfund uh, and also more recently Naitahu. And those two shareholders with their very sort of multi-generational investment horizons have really given us license to think about how we run a life insurance company a little more differently than what so we might So how is it different? When you have shareholders who are very much motivated by long-term multi-generational outcomes, it means we have a different set of priorities and a different, it puts a different complexion mm -hmm. on management's decision making. So how that might manifest, for example, uh, when we are thinking about shifts from what is in our market perhaps a preoccupation with volume mm -hmm. and new business volume and how that surfaces in sort of vanity metrics like market share. We have a slightly different take on that and, and it's, it's much more a focus on value and value that is going to go a long way in underpinning those long-term certain outcomes for customers. So for example, you might not see Fidelity Life aggressively pursuing new business growth mm. through um, through different channels, particularly through um, offers to customers and to advisors. Our focus is certainly to contributing to Kiwis being more, uh, better protected, 
but um, we are also equally focused on that underlying value. So it's quite interesting because when I heard you speak at the WealthPoint conference, I think one of the messages you said is that, you know, Fidelity Life is now more interested in looking after its existing customers than chasing new customers. Is is that correct? We are very committed to our existing customers mm. and you know that's evidenced by the fact mm. we invest heavily in a large team of mm. retention, um, retention resources and helping customers um, uh, conserve their protection when times get difficult, mm. you know. Um, and so that's a very real focus for management, but also from our shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you keep growing the business if your focus is on your existing customers and not necessarily trying to onboard new people? Look, I think we, we remain committed to mm. helping New Zealanders get protected, mm. but it is not to the exclusion or detriment yeah. of focus on our existing customers. Mm. And there are lots of different ways we can do that, right? So we've, we've demonstrated an inorganic strategy, which was to acquire Westpac Life. Yes. We remain deeply committed to the uh, advisor community. In fact, advisors we see as our core channel mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, an ideal channel in which to continue to grow, to yeah. grow our business. So, so advisors still remain your number one distribution? Absolutely, yeah. so at our conference called Engage back in July and other conferences we've been attending, we, we are consistent in that yeah. message. We see advisors as delivering the best outcomes for customers. There's a body of evidence mm -hmm. and, and data which mm -hmm. supports that. And we are deeply committed to seeing a sustainable advice community. We, we have perhaps um, a slightly more mature demo demographic of advisors within the Fidelity Life family. That's what I would have thought, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's okay. Uh, we don't see necessarily the calamitous claims of this mass exodus of advisors from the New Zealand industry actually playing out in reality. But yeah. on the basis that um, we would like to support additional youth and diversity into that channel. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why we are investing in things like our careers yeah, and yeah. skills program. So, so, so what does a sustainable advice channel look like and what does that mean with um, commissions? So, <laughs> so um, I realise this can be a, a sensitive topic. Look, I think um, commissions certainly has a place in underpinning a sustainable advice community, it is absolutely important that advisors are compensated fairly mm -hmm. for the really important role that they play. We have seen uh, in other markets, particularly the Australian market, mm -hmm. where we've observed with changes, material changes actually, to the um, levels of commission paid, whilst that has addressed some of the issues with churn and replacement business, one of the more negative um, results is that it has driven up the cost of risk insurance advice. So for example, last year uh, we saw that a statement of advice from a risk insurance advisor would cost a customer a minimum of 3,000 Australian dollars in Australia, yeah. right? <clears throat> and were changes to be made to the commission frameworks here, we might expect similar adverse outcomes for New Zealanders. That puts access to risk insurance advice well beyond the average New Zealander and for us that is something we, we really need to try and avoid. So where do you want to go in that sort of picture in terms of with the commissions and the structures and how it looks? Look, I think we support 
First of all, we support dialogue. Mm. And at the moment, there is a vacuum of, of dialogue in this space for what is a really significant topic. So we welcome being able to engage with um, relevant stakeholders to, to start so a dialogue like on this. Absolutely, and, and, and policymakers, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, we do think uh, Commission has a role to play, whether it's at the levels of, of Commission that mm. are paid today. I think that, that would warrant further scrutiny. Mm -hmm. um, assuming, and um, first, we definitely support the prohibition of um, target-based, yes, you know, incentives. Um, but in terms of ensuring there there is fair compensation for advisors that results in customers being able to access mm. risk insurance advice, Commission mm. must play a role in that. Mm -hmm. do, do you see do you see a change coming where um, there may be more of a fee for service in the future? I think there's opportunity for a variety of different models yeah. and hybrid models which include some commission, potentially some fee-for-service, are already being discussed um, yeah. across the industry, yeah. which is really positive. Mm -hmm. So we can get on the front foot with mm. actually working out um, what a sustainable arrangement might be. There's been examples of fee-for-service uh, fee models incorporated into yeah. some niche businesses and other mature markets. Mm. At the end of the day, we have a very small insurable population here. Mm. So whatever we do needs to be a model that is sustainable and doesn't impact mm. the customer's ability to access. <clears throat> so, so it sounds like you'd, you'd like to see some changes happen. Is that I'm correct there, aren't I? I think we'd all like to yeah. really close out the argument yes, that is yeah. the current model is not working mm. and land on a model that is going to be sustainable. Do you have a preferred model in mind or is that sort of a work in progress? I think it's a work in progress mm. and it's, it's certainly not a um, one size fits all. There are lots of different types of advice businesses mm. emerging. Mm. Um, some of these have scale that we might not have imagined, you know, three to five years ago. So um, whilst we don't yet have a, a defined model mm. or, or view of what good looks like, um, I imagine it wouldn't be a one size fits all. Just tracking back a little bit, you mentioned something about advisors leaving the industry or, or coming in. What are you seeing there? Because we're sort of getting different stories across different mm. players. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, you noted that I guess you've got a slightly older demographic maybe than some of the other companies out there. So what, what are you seeing? So when I, when I was about to come back to New Zealand and, mm. and, and in discussion with you know, some of my future colleagues and, and um, industry participants, I was hearing these really quite scary claims that half of the industry was going to disappear from March. And um, I think we're starting to see that's, that's really, not, um, right. really not happening as, as, as was imagined. There has certainly been some contraction in advice numbers, but I think we would see that those advisors who have either left already or have um, signposted they won't be um, uh, continuing beyond March next year have not been in have not been actively giving advice for some time anyway. So whether or not their exit has any sort of significant impact on underinsurance or growth in the industry, I think it, it's probably unlikely to be as severe. Yeah, and what's Fidelity doing re-bringing on new advisors? So we recently um, launched a new program, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, it's called Career Connect. Mm -hmm. um, we know that there have been multiple successful instances of life insurers running career programs and academies and training schools and, and things like that in the past. Um, and that's great. And so we now want to step in and play a role mm -hmm. in, in bringing some more youth and diversity mm -hmm. uh, into, the, into the industry. So that program, um, we have our first career evening 
which is oversubscribed. We have a really diverse mix of uh, individuals attending that, everything from architects to uh, plumbers to uh, school teachers, really, really diverse, eclectic mix. This program, in collaboration with a number of existing advice businesses mm. in the industry, will make at least some inroad mm. into into. Mm. Um, so I was going to ask you, where are the new people coming from? But it sounds like it's a very, very diverse. Really diverse, and that's important, right? I yeah. think the the perception of the advice industry dare I use the phrase, a little um, pale, stale and male, mm. uh, really needs to, to change to more closely align with the diversity in the population today. And so we've been very conscious yeah. in, in how we've put the programme well, together. A, I think that's a problem across the financial services it industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and just finally, it's sort of a little bit on product. You were saying that, you know, um, with COVID, you're likely to see some different outcomes around claims and, and, and long COVID and things like that. Can you sort of give us a little bit of a taste of what you're seeing there? or thinking you're going to see there? Yeah, so this sort of plays into a general sense of um, uncertainty mm. across our operating environment, and there's there's a number of different factors there, um, and the changing nature of morbidity claims particularly um, is one of those one of those aspects. Um, at the moment, the the data doesn't necessarily point to anything conclusive that long COVID will be. A will drive a material change in morbidity exposure, but there is enough data emerging in larger population bases, particularly in the US and in the UK, mm. which may indicate that um, we could have some have some challenges in this yeah. space. Obviously, mental health mm. as a cause of, of morbidity claims is, is well understood and continuing to flummox many in the industry as to what a what a solution might be to help help these customers. But um, whether it's long COVID or another or another um, another unexpected um, consequence of, yeah. of the pandemic, these things may start emerging over yeah. the over the next year, uh, year or so. Something interesting to watch as, as we go on. Interesting, yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, one, one way of looking at it. One way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, thank you for your time, Bronwyn. Lovely to have you in the studio and, and Thanks, hopefully Phil. get you back again soon. Lovely, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you.